Well, it looks like another Muhammad Ali classic has been produced, and that's uh, Ali's comeback. Now, instead of focusing on his life in the ring, though, it looks like this documentary currently streaming on Amazon uh, gives one a 360-degree holistic view of who Ali was. Now, it looks at Ali's struggle to return to the boxing ring and how it became the biggest sporting event in an entire generation. Now, the documentary, is a series of unlikely events, though, that would lead to his eventual return to the ring. If you throw your mind back to 1970, uh, that was back in Atlanta, Georgia. And despite the forces, though, of the United States government working uh, completely against the champion. Now, being stripped off his title, convicted of draft evasion, and also threatened with imprisonment. He was also banned in all 50 states and was literally unable to work all right before we chat to a sport historian as well as a marketing consultant who's coming to us live from the united states of america let's give you a bit of a clip of what the voice behind the donkey literally sounds like down on my knees but i keep my head to the sky knowing that the power i need only god can provide my intention is to box, to win a clean fight. But in war, the intention is to kill, 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 and continue killing innocent people. It's been three and a half years since he's been stripped of his title. He was 27. His title had been stripped from him back in 1967. And he was just looking to fight. Convicted for draft evasion, threatened with imprisonment, Muhammad Ali is banned from fighting in all 50 states. But in Atlanta, Georgia, in October of 1970, that all changed. Matched against the top contender for the boxing crown, Jerry Quarry, the greatest, is back. I just knew it would happen, eventually. I just was hoping it would happen before they come grab him to put him in jail. The build-up to the fight was one of just exceptional enthusiasm. Reading the papers was exciting because you heard somebody's view on it's this is going to happen. Quarry's going to win because. And then somebody else says, no, Ali's going to win because. The night of the match was electrifying. It was, as one observer called it, the largest display of black wealth in history in a single location up until that point. Major event took place in our city. I, as mayor, knew that it was significant that this was very meaningful to our city in many ways. And what were their challenges? The significance of the fight and the incredible after party that never happened. Ali's comeback. Oh, what a voice, what drama. It's almost like I was watching the documentary. And we got the sport historian as well as marketing consultant live from the U.S. Uh, that's I.D. Oyo joining me. I.D., thank you so much for your time. Good evening. Welcome to Marawa Sports Worldwide. It's a pleasure to be with you, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. I even forgot I was doing an interview. I was so caught up in the drama and caught up in your in, 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 in your narration of what was going on. I mean, that's just how brilliant um, you sound on it. How does it feel listening back to that? 
Yeah, you know, it's um, it's very interesting because, you know, Muhammad Ali was one of the most recognizable figures in the world. In fact, in history, uh, you cannot write the history of sports without mentioning those three letters, A-L-I. So, yeah, it was just a privilege to be able to be asked to work on a project like this, and it was quite humbling. How did that come about? Um, I mean, I know your your extensive work, uh, you know, through lots of work within the sporting fraternity, which we'll touch on uh, in just a second. But this particular project, how did they approach you? How did it come about? Yeah, so the project is, uh, a con- it was conceived by a gentleman named Art Jones. He is with a company called Dream Factory. And through a referral, somebody thought that perhaps I might be able to add some context uh, given the knowledge that I have, and um, perhaps I might be able to shed some light. So we arranged to have coffee and then lunch, and just kind of talked about it, and he thought that I would be able to make as much use of the film. And uh, that's how I got started on the project, and you know, conducted extensive research in the course of the project, and uh, actually found new things that I had not known previously. So that's kind of how it came about. It was a referral, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it turned out that it worked out. All right. I want to take a quick early break. I, I, I'm not doing this out of uh, because I don't want to listen to you. I really want to. I'm just not happy with the quality of our connection. So we're going to try and get that sorted up uh, so that we can hear you loud and clear right across the length and the breadth of the country, the continent and the world. It's Marawa Sports Worldwide as we checked the massive docky uh, that's coming out on Amazon. IDO is my guest. IDO is my guest coming through all the way from the United States of America. We're chatting all things to do with the great Muhammad Ali and the conscientious objector um, to war that he was. Was that something that would have grabbed you, ID, in terms of just his, his background? Was that part and parcel of what uh, maybe a lot of people haven't spoken about that much? In 1960, Muhammad Ali goes to Rome and he wins the gold medal at the Olympic Games in the light heavyweight boxing division. He then goes back to Louisville, Kentucky, his hometown, which is in the southern part of the United States, and he faces this element of racism because of what they call Jim Crow laws, not unlike apartheid, where things are separate, separate restaurants for blacks and whites, separate schools, separate bathrooms, everything is separate, and he cannot reconcile the fact that he has just represented the United States at the Olympic Games But he comes home and he's given this treatment. So in 1964, he wins the heavyweight championship of the world when he knocks out Sonny Liston. He changes his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. And he becomes a member of something known as the Nation of Islam. And at that point in time, he becomes so or a polarizing figure here in the U.S., especially given the turbulence of the 1960s. And that's kind of how it began for him. He becomes awake, if you will. And I say that in quotes. And he tries to find himself. And so when he is asked to draft, to be drafted in the 19, when he's drafted in 1967 to fight in the war in Vietnam, because at that time, the United States was mired in a war in South Asia, in Vietnam. Muhammad Ali gets drafted and he refuses to be inducted into the military to go and fight this war, citing his religion and being a conscientious objector. He believes that he is more oppressed in the U.S. with the Jim Crow laws, uh, segregation, 
So he sees no reason why he needs to go to South Asia and start killing brown and black people and so on when they have not done anything to him. And he says, ain't no one from Vietnam ever called me a nigger, which is the equivalent of using the K word in South Africa. So that's kind of how it began for him as a conscientious objector. So he refused to go to uh, South Asia to go and fight in the Vietnam War. And at that time, his title was stripped from him. He was fined 10,000 US dollars and he was sentenced to five years in prison, though he was free on appeal. So that's kind of how the film starts. It talks about that period in 1967 when this all comes about. He's stripped of his title and he's unable to fight in any of the 50 U.S. states. And all along, what was the level of support, though, idea that he was getting or was he basically out there almost as a Lone Ranger? Yeah, so within the black community, especially the sporting community, he had a lot of support by other well-known athletes at the time. Uh, they wanted to, you know, they needed to find out, you know, is this guy real? Is his conscientious objection just an act? Or does he really believe in this? That, no, I can't fight in this war because it goes against everything that I stand for, most importantly, my religion. So he did have quite a bit of support, though he was mostly broke. A lot of, he got a lot of support from his fellow athletes, including, ironically, Joe Frazier, who was also a popular boxer at the time, and he would later also become the heavyweight champion of the world. So they were supporting Ali financially. Uh, he would speak at university campuses to get money. And he also would perform on Broadway. So there, he was doing odd jobs just to stay afloat during this period of time. But generally speaking, the level of support he had from the African-American community was exceptionally high. I mean, I saw in the trailer that uh, we played out to our listeners early on as well, uh, I.D., the former mayor of Atlanta, as well as United Nations Ambassador Andrew Young uh, featuring in it. Tell me a little bit more about the role that he would have played. Uh, and also when you look at the Olympic gold medalist, uh, Edwin Moses, uh, who I, I do believe also features in the docu. Yeah, so the at the time... The, there was no unified boxing authority, if you will. Like there was no FIFA of boxing. So each right. state in the United States could individually license a fighter to go fight. So it turns out that in the state of Georgia, there was no boxing commission. Unlike other states like California, Nevada, New York, in Georgia, there was no boxing commission. Therefore, there was no body, no official sanctioning body that could deny him a license to fight in the state because that official body did not exist. So it was up to the mayor of Atlanta to then say, yes or no, we can have this in my city and so on. Through So a black politician named Leroy Johnson began the lobbying effort with the mayor to try to get this to happen in the city of Atlanta, in the state of Georgia, because Georgia did not have a boxing commission. Now, Atlanta is predominantly a black city, and the mayor is Jewish. So he got quite a bit of votes from the African-American community to elect him as mayor. So there are those that say that in some ways, yeah, he owed them, if you will. So that's how the mayor was able to come around and say yes after a tremendous amount of pressure 
and lobbying. And at the time, the United Nations ambassador, Andrew Young at the time was not an ambassador, but he was an up and coming politician in the United States. He was a disciple of Martin Luther King Jr. and was with him when King was assassinated. So Andrew Young was a highly respected voice in the civil rights movement and in the city of Atlanta. And they were able to bring enough pressure to bear where the mayor was able to accede to the request to grant Ali a license to fight in the city of Atlanta. Those, I'd always wondered, and, and, and you've captured it so well, though, I.D., where when it came to Muhammad Ali, where he would light the Olympic flame after the city of Atlanta had been awarded the 1996 Olympic Games, and one tried to track and trace how that happened. Uh, but I think that th- that is well captured, I would imagine, in the documentary. Yeah, the documentary, I think towards the end, it does say, it mention something about that. What happened was, uh, in 1996, the Olympics, well, in 1990, the Olympics were awarded to the city of Atlanta. And it's ironic that Ali would be selected to light the Olympic cauldron. And it was such a significant event. If I could put on my marketing hat now, the Olympic torch as a brand was worth $12 million as a brand prior to Ali lighting the cauldron in the 1996 Olympics. Today, the Olympic torch is a $200 million brand, simply in part by the visibility he brought to lighting the Olympic torch. Now, there was controversy at the time because the city of Atlanta, the organizers of the Olympic Games, did not want Ali to light the torch. Why? Because they said that Ali was a draft dodger and refused to fight for his country. So again, we had a lot of political machinations in the background where they finally prevailed on the organizers of the Olympics in Atlanta to allow Ali the honor of lighting the cauldron, if you will. So even that was fraught with controversy at the time. But eventually he did, and is one of the most brilliantly watched events in Olympic history, Muhammad Ali standing at the electric cauldron, shaking from Parkinson's disease, and he gets through it. Oh, and, and, and that image will forever live in our minds, you know, for eternity, because it's exactly that. It was the onset of Parkinson's at this time, and you're almost feeling sorry for this person who was so almost gung-ho, who was so confident, who would tell anybody anything, who was so smart, who was so intelligent, who was such a, you know, a deep-rooted fighter within himself, and almost seeming very, you know, help and getting weaker and so on, that that was significant on so many different levels, though, Adi, when we look back at the moment and how then, obviously, ultimately, Ali then eventually passed away. Yeah, so Parkinson's disease robbed Muhammad Ali of a lot of his cognitive function. I mean, there are those that say that he stayed in the ring way too long. I mean, he ended up retiring in 1981 after losing the Trevor Burbick. But he really did perhaps, you know, if you look at him as a dynamic figure, I mean, perhaps one of the most visible sportsmen in history, Parkinson's really robbed us of that brilliance in the latter years of his life, where it impaired his speech, his cognitive function. And this is a time that Ali was be- transitioning from becoming this polarizing figure to perhaps one of the most revered athletes in history. So yeah, Parkinson's was a very debilitating disease for him. And it took away 
some of the pros that we were used to when Ali would predict how he would knock out opponents and so on. There are those who say Ali was the first rapper, but he was just so poetic. And Parkinson denied us of having that part of him through the second part of his life. How significant a project is this for you personally, uh, ID? When you look back at your body of work, uh, which included some, you know, fine publications uh, like the FIFA Football Crisis, uh, of which obviously South Africa uh, was a proud recipient of hosting a FIFA World Cup, uh, but where you highlight your, your four key thoughts regarding that, uh, where you've also had publications about beating apartheid, Nelson Mandela, and the power of sport uh, within the Huffington Post, and so on. So your body of work has kept you know, especially within the Olympic fold, within FIFA, uh, within doping in sport, all of them well-documented. And all of a sudden, here is this Muhammad Ali documentary that lands up and you are a major part of it. Where does it rank in terms of your work? Yeah, so I'm very privileged to get a chance to work on a project like this. You mentioned earlier Dr. Edwin Moses. Uh, who won an Olympic gold medal in 1976 and 1984, bronze medals in 88, and um, Ambassador Andrew Young. So being able to be on the same platform, sharing the same platform with such luminaries, Dr. Moses was actually a student in, 19, in the 1970s in Atlanta when Muhammad Ali came. So uh, just having the opportunity to interact and engage with, uh, with such dignitaries in such a manner where you know you're able to share research, sit down, interview them, talk to them, uh, get a feel for what they were thinking, their, pro- their thought processes, and then of course I went to the Muhammad Ali Center in Louisville, his museum up there. So just getting a chance to interact and engage at this level with such luminaries was very much a privilege for me. So it's a uh, it's a project that I'm very grateful I had the chance to do. All right, I'm just monitoring Twitter as I speak to you. Wendy Lemtana says that um, Muhammad Ali perennial competitive success had been increasingly uh, to justify the self-belief and also enabled him to uh, inculcate an impression that he was almost superhuman. He says Muhammad Ali emerged in boxing during the time of apartheid, uh, but he broke those barriers to become a world champion. When you reflect back and given all the knowledge that you do have, ID, do you believe, though, that... In, in just in terms of where he is placed in world history and in terms of recognition and appreciation that he has gotten all of that. The two most visible sports names in the English dictionary are Muhammad Ali and Pele. Those two athletes defied sports in the 20th century. Muhammad Ali particularly because in addition to being an athlete, Athletes were used to going to work, playing their sport, and then going home. Muhammad Ali transitioned. He used the athletic platform to say his message, to say his piece. He was never quiet. He was not a wallflower. He would go directly against the establishment using the platform he had. But as a key, he had to keep winning, right? Because if he wasn't the champion, he would not have that platform. So he talks about that, how he understood the power that he had. And so Ali was just not just the sports person, but he was a diplomat. There is no country in the world that Muhammad Ali would go to that he could not meet the head of state of that country on day one of his arrival. That's how big he was. So he transitioned himself from just being a boxer to being a diplomat, a statesman, and a really a revered figure. So 
in the context of history, there are very few people, even if you never saw him fight, you know the name Muhammad Ali because of how prolific he was, not just as a sports icon, but perhaps in popular culture, in entertainment, and in the political arena as well. I'm glad you mentioned that because it brings me back to the kind of ties or relationship that Muhammad Ali had with the continent from where we broadcasting from the continent of Africa. And uh, if you cast your mind back to the what 1980 when the U.S. President Jimmy Carter uh, literally sent Ali to six of the African nations to convince them uh, to join the U.S. boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. That is the kind of clout that you are describing right now. So if I could just take it back a year before that, in 1979, there was a revolution in the country of Iran, an Islamic revolution, and 52 Americans were taken hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. There was nothing the U.S. could do to free these hostages. There was a plan, however, from U.S. President Jimmy Carter at the time in 1979, thinking that they could send Muhammad Ali to Iran because one, he was a Muslim, and two, he would be highly respected in that community. So there was a plan to actually send Ali to negotiate with the Ayatollah Khomeini at the time for the release of American hostages. For some reason, they ended up not doing that, but that's how highly he was thought of in both the U.S. and in the Islamic community, that they would think of using him for that sort of diplomatic mission. You could not do that with any other athlete. Now, in 1974, Muhammad Ali fights George Foreman in Zaire, now the DRC, for the heavyweight championship of the world. And at that time, it was the largest pay-per-view grossing fight in history. And to this day, along with the FIFA World Cup, remains the most significant sporting event ever on the African continent. And then in 1980, the United States decides that they are going to boycott the 1980 Olympics in Moscow because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. They sent Ali to six African countries to get them to join in the boycott of the U.S.-led boycott. And at the end, only two of those countries, Kenya and then Liberia, ultimately sent teams to Moscow, though Liberia withdrew right after the opening ceremony. So that particular mission was not as successful. But Ali does have a history in Africa with the Rumble in the Jungle in 1974 and with the uh, diplomatic effort with the 1980 Olympic I just remember the playful exchanges that, you know, the now late Muhammad Ali had with the now late uh, former president of South Africa, uh, Nelson Mandela had. But you could tell the affection, you could tell the love, the respect, and, you know, just the, the real demeanor around them, ID, because, you know, Nelson Mandela was equally the kind of boxer that we all knew, the kind of fitness fanatic that we all knew, uh, but just mainly the connect and the connection that they had uh, from a boxing, but also just from an intellectual level. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, um, Mr. Mandela was very fond of, of boxers. I mean, he, he ended up meeting Mike Tyson and his relationship with Ali was such that he admired the fact that Ali also never gave up. Ali also faced, quote-unquote, demand. 
a system that was rigged against him. And Ali also prevailed. So there were so many common links and similarities that the two men showed. Tell me in the last uh, minute or so that we do have, uh, I know that uh, the world of uh, consuming content has changed so much around the world. And um, I see a lot of people tweeting, asking when and where can they watch and learn? The documentary is currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video at the moment. There are The producers are in discussions to... Uh, broaden the footprint. You can also download it on iTunes and the and, and Android Store. It's available there as well. And more platforms are coming. Uh, keep tuned to my Twitter, and we'll be making further announcements. Absolutely. I think uh, groundbreaking stuff indeed, and we're always very proud, uh, ID, to have such uh, conversations because, you know, thought leaders uh, are well thought of internationally, yes, but also domestically uh, when you look at the role that Muhammad Ali played, not only in the ring but off it and just your participation in it. And thanks for giving us a heads up on Twitter and letting me know. And I just thought, well, what an opportunity to chat to you and get South Africans listening and the world that's listening to Marawa Sports Worldwide uh, to really tap, and I look forward to watching it, listening to it intently, uh, because I just think the delivery that you uh, you were able to 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 make and to have on the documentary itself is really world class. As has always been your work uh, throughout the time that we have known of you, uh, ID. And thank you so much, indeed. Real honest pleasure having you on our platform. Uh, you're quite welcome, Robert. For anybody that wants to follow me, my Twitter handle is at ID Sports, I-D-Y-S-P-O-R-T-S. And it is an absolute pleasure giving a chance to interact with your audience this evening. Thank you so much as well. Thank you very, very much indeed. That's the sport historian and also marketing consultant coming to us live from the United States of America. Uh, that's ID um, Oyo, who, yeah, major, major part of Ali's comeback, I think is sketched very beautifully for us the history, maybe that that has been untold and unknown. Uh, we look forward to really watching it and being part of that history. I know from time to time the line might not have been that clear. Uh, we do apologize for that, but we had to make do with what we have uh, given the scenario.